Hello, and welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. This week, my guest is Dr. Joyce Van Donkersgood. Joyce has had a long and successful career as a veterinarian in academia, working for government and industry, and as a practice owner of a very successful feedlot consulting practice. She's currently working on various extension and research projects for the beef cattle industry with other university, government, and industry partners. She's one of the past presidents of the Western Canadian Bovine Practitioners Association, and she's a recipient of its Bovine Practitioner of the Year Award, as well as the Canadian Association of Bovine Practitioners Bovine Welfare Award. She's published extensively in the scientific and lay press, and today we're going to have a chat about one of her latest projects on improving vaccine use in cow-calf herds in Canada. Let's get started. Hi, Joyce. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks, John. Yeah, well, uh, before we get into our topic for today, I'll maybe ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your background and about what you're doing these days. Okay, well, um, I'm Joyce Van Donkersgood. I am a farm kid from just uh, south of Coaldale, was raised on a, a mixed beef cattle and grain operation with my folks here. Uh, so we had Charlie cow calf and feeder cattle as well. So I grew up with cattle. Then I went to Saskatoon, got my vet degree, then went back to Alberta, practiced a few years before I returned to Saskatoon and got an advanced degree in bovine medicine and worked there with Dr. Jansen for many years in the Department of Herd Medicine, as well as at Vito later as a beef cow scientist doing a lot of vaccine research before I had my midlife crisis and went back to Alberta, um, did various jobs with uh, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, was a provincial beef vet for a while before I started a feedlot practice um, just uh, in Picture Butte, which I owned and managed for over 16 years before um, I just uh, sold that. And now I'm back consulting. I consult for the Alberta Cattle Feeders and National Cattle Feeders, as well as do projects like this, both in extension and research to try to help the beef industry. So that's kind of my background. Great. Yeah, you've done an awful lot of different things, all involved with the beef industry in Western Canada and and, and across Canada, too, with many of your research projects and things like that. So one of your latest projects is a project on improving vaccination success in Western Canadian beef herds. And I know there's a lot of different people and groups involved, but tell us a little bit about uh, the people and the groups who you're working with and what the main objectives of that project were? Sure. Um, so the Beef Cattle Research Council had a call for proposals for individuals to do some extension work to try to improve vaccinations in beef herds in Canada. And part of, you know, trying to improve vaccinations is to prevent disease, uh, which, you know, is obviously less costly to producers, but also to reduce the use of antimicrobials because of concerns about antimicrobial uh, resistance and reduced effectiveness of those antimicrobials. So I put together a big team. Um, we have from the University of Calgary Vet College, Dr. Claire uh, Winder and Dr. Eugene Jansen. Then, um, you know, we uh, reached out to Sketch and Cattlemen's Association. So Marianne, as well as Glenn, are involved on the project. And then I pulled in some, um, some older practitioners, uh, Dr. Blaine Pickard from Pincher Creek, who had a cow-calf practice and still um, uh, practices a bit. And Dr. Bill Newton, who now, now is a big cow-calf producer, uh, but is also a veterinarian in his past life. 
And then we, um, I went, reached out to all the pharmaceutical companies that actually dispense um, or sell vaccines. And so we had the technical veterinarians for Western Canada, as well as HIPRA's national vets involved on our team. We thought that was important. And then um, have Andrea Hansen from Lakeland College, as well as from the Vet College in Calgary through the Livestock and Forest Center of Excellence. We have Dr. Colin Palmer and Scott Wright. And then Saskatchewan Ag has also provided some individuals that are providing support. So we have funding, you know, for the Beef Cattle Research Council, obviously, as well as funding from Alberta Cattle Feeders Association, because they would really encourage cow-cow producers to try to immunize these uh, calves before they get the feedlot. And then we have funding from Saskatchewan Cattlemen's as well as Manitoba Beef Producers, so as well as the pharmaceutical companies. So we have a very large team, you know, both a practical experience, which my dad said is always very important and I agree with, as well as the scientific expertise. And then we reach out to others as needed when we have questions, such as Dr. Amelia Williams from the U.S. Great. So uh, lots of different organizations in the beef industry involved. What what were the main objectives of the of the project? So the main objectives of the project were first to see what are uh, producers and veterinarians, you know, what are producers using for vaccines, what are veterinarians recommending, and you know is there a disjoint there? And then you know what you know additional tools would be beneficial from a producer's perspective to help them make decisions regarding vaccination to vaccinate or not. And then from a veterinarian's perspective as well, what additional tools would help them work with their producer clients that we can maybe provide veterinarians. And, you know, the whole goal of our project, you know, we're not just focused on increasing vaccination because that's not always the right thing. We want to improve strategic vaccination and and encourage veterinarians to develop herd-specific vaccination protocols based on disease risks and and other management factors relevant to that producer. So that is what we're focusing on, on, obviously, with the goal to reduce disease risks and uh, financial losses to producers. One of the first things uh, you're research group did was you surveyed cow-calf producers as well as a group of veterinarians in Western Canada. And maybe before we talk about the surveys, we should emphasize that surveys are pretty useful tools, but they do have some limitations. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, obviously it's a convenient sample, meaning, you know, people who want to respond, respond. So it's not truly representative of if the entire population out there. You know, and that's sometimes a problem when we're wanting to look at vaccination practices, um, because usually the keeners, you know, that do vaccinate are the ones that might respond to a survey versus those that don't believe in vaccination are the ones that don't respond. So, yeah, you know, there's always a bias in surveys. So I think we need to bear that in mind. Our results, I think, will look better um, than probably what's really happening in the field. Right. Yeah. So we always have to think about that, but they're still useful. They give us an idea or a general idea about what's going on out there in the world. So let's focus on the producer's results first. Sure. Why did those Western Canadian cow-calf producers make the decision to even use vaccines in their herd? So the most common reason why they used a vaccine was to, you know, prevent disease problems. So I'd say that was the most common reason they used the vaccine. And we did have that they could have more than one choice, but 95% of them said prevent disease problems. There are a few that just said, you know, a third of them said, well, my vet told me to. And, you know, they trust their veterinarian. And so they did as the veterinarian uh, said. There was, you know, about 10% or so said that they've had disease problems in the past. So that's why they did it or their neighbor had problems. So those are the most common reasons why they were vaccinating their cow herd, as well as their pre-weaned calves. 
Yeah, there's nothing to motivate you to vaccinate like a wreck, right? Yeah, that'll, that's for sure. Yeah, that'll change things pretty quickly. Uh, let's let's focus on some of the producers' results uh, and talk about replacement heifers first, because you broke it down into different age categories. How many producers actually vaccinated their replacement heifers, and when did they do it? So 95% of the, or 94% of the producers vaccinated their heifers within the last year. And, you know, three quarters of that did it before breeding, you know, which is the optimal time for reproductive diseases, as you know. Uh, about 20% did it at pregnancy exam. And then a third of them did it at different times of the year. So, you know, they were talking about all their vaccines. So as you know, you know, different vaccines you might use at different times or booster, right? Um, the good thing is three quarters of them boosted their vaccine within the same year. Because uh, that's always an important, you know, thing with different vaccines, right? Some require a booster, particularly in replacement heifers if they've never been vaccinated before. And what did they say they actually vaccinated for in those replacement heifers? What vaccines did they use? Yeah, so the most commonly used vaccines were the viral uh, diseases, IBR and BVD or bovine viral diarrhea for reproductive losses, um, as well as they were concerned about respiratory disease, viral respiratory disease. The one that concerned us a bit was clostridials, you know, that caused black leg tetanus, um, malignant edema, all these diseases. Only two-thirds vaccinated for clostridials. About half of them vaccinated their heifers for scours. And, and then less commonly, we saw for lepto and vibrio, and, and hardly any did for pink eye or foot rot. And there, there was one percent that actually didn't know what they vaccinated for, which was interesting. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the breeding cows. What did the respondents in the survey say about their vaccination practices there? Well, there was a little lower than the replacement heifers. 89% said they vaccinated the cows last year. Timing is a little different. Here we only had 48% vaccinated before breeding. We saw more pregnancy exams. So in the fall, about 37%, and then 28% different times of the year, and then a few before calving, which you know may be related to the SCARS vaccine. Um, of concern a bit was that only 86% boosted their vaccines annually for all vaccines, and then only 9% boosted uh, annually for some vaccines. So again, it would depend which vaccine. The most common diseases they did, similar to the replacement heifers, is IBR and BVD. We did have, you know, um, 71% clostridials, but again, a bit low, and 45% for scours, and then only a third for uh, lipto and vibrio, and then very few for foot rot or pink eye. And again, 2% didn't know why they were, what they were vaccinating for and why. Well, a lot of producers sometimes forget about their bulls when it comes to vaccines, and I know we found that in one of our studies that we did in our uh, cow-calf surveillance project. What did your survey find out about bull vaccines? Well, very similar to yours, because we did compare our survey results to your 2019 publication, yours and Cheryl's. And I think in yours, you had 72% vaccinated bulls. Well, we only had 74% vaccinate the bulls in the previous year. You know, 81% did it before breeding season, 21% after they purchased them before entering the breeding herd, which is good to do, and 20% at different times. And then only three-quarter boosted them annually for their vaccines. So the viruses, again, they were typically doing as IBR, BBD, um, only two-thirds for clostridials. But we did see a higher incidence of foot rot vaccines here, 44% vaccinated for foot rot. Because you know, you know, a lame bull is not going to get many cows bred or heifers bred. Right. That's often the place where foot rot vaccines get used is in bulls. Let's talk about pre-weaned calves, the last group that you looked at. What did, what did you see in the vaccination practices for pre-weaned calves? 
Well, there about three quarters of the producers vaccinated their cows in the last year. So we had about 22% vaccinated at birth. You know, we have some of these intranasals that you can use at that young an age. We had 33% a few weeks before weaning um, and about two, you know, a little over, well, 80% that did it at spring processing. So, you know, historically, that's the most common time, you know, we would vaccinate our cows at spring processing, uh, depending on your disease risk, obviously. Then again, similar to the cows, IBR, BVD, um, you know, that was the most common vaccines used. A little less commonly used was clostridials. But we see an increase here in the bacterial vaccines for respiratory disease. So here we had just under 50% uh, vaccinating for Menhemia hemolytica, as well as Hestophilus somnus and Pastoral maltosida. So there's a slight increase in those for respiratory disease. So there were some gaps in the vaccine programs that you identified through there. And what reasons did producers give for not vaccinating? So the most common reason um, in all groups was they don't have disease problems or they didn't perceive to have disease problems. Then, you know, a few, you know, um, they bought like with replacement heifers, they're already pre-vaccinated or the bulls. And then, you know, with uh, the calves, um, well, actually with all age groups, sometimes they just didn't have the facilities to vaccinate um, the animals, particularly with bulls. They didn't have facilities necessary to safely vaccinate bulls. You know, other problems, logistic problems is they didn't have the help or they didn't have the time or there's a few few that didn't think the vaccines work or they thought they would cost too much. But number one reason is perception they didn't have disease problems. You also surveyed some veterinarians as part of another part of this project. And what did they say were the major reasons that they thought producers kind of failed to follow their vaccine recommendations? Well, the number one reason was very similar to what producers said is that they didn't believe their herd was at risk of disease. Then, you know, the second reason vets thought was a lack of an economic incentive to vaccinate. Like in some of the producers that vaccinated their calves pre-weaning, they were part of, they were either going to retain ownership or put them into a feedlot, which asked for vaccination. So those are some reasons. But others, they didn't see uh, an economic reason to vaccinate. And then we do see that thought quite high, lack of good facilities or insufficient help to vaccinate. Or they didn't round up the cattle when the vet recommended they should vaccinate. So, and then a few, not enough time. So very similar reasons that the vets are perceiving that producers are not vaccinating is what the producers are saying. Okay. So the other part of this project was looking at defining what the core vaccines for Canadian cow-calf herds are. And this was primarily based on this American Association of Bovine Practitioners core vaccines. That's the group of cattle vets in the U.S. that uh, many of us are involved with as well. So tell us what you mean by a core vaccine. What's the definition of that? Well, the U.S. has a slightly different definition than what we came up with. In their definition, you know, they're talking about diseases that are endemic or common and or the infectious agents are common in, you know, the beef herds in the area. Um, so we agreed with that definition. They also had, you know, that the disease either was uh, of concern to human, uh, uh, human disease or that it was regulated. So we removed those two requirements for core vaccines because we don't have any vaccines that are regulated, nor do we have any um, of the ones that we vaccinate cattle with currently that cause disease in humans. So our definition was core vaccines are needed to protect from diseases or infectious agents that are common, you know, in, in the area that the bacteria virus is 
is very infectious. It can spread easily amongst animals within a herd and that it can cause, you know, severe disease risk to either cows, bulls, replacement heifers, or the calves. And then the other one we added on that the NCB or AABP didn't have is that there has to be an effective commercial vaccine available. So, right. Yeah. So that, that is a difference in our definition from the U.S. definition. Right. That U.S. regulated vaccine would probably be mostly associated with brucellosis, which we have uh, as an eradicated program here rather than a vaccination program, correct? Correct, yes. We don't vaccinate here because we have eradicated it. So what were the core vaccines that your group decided on when you sort of look at that and you sort of say, these are the common diseases, these are the effective vaccines we have? What did you arrive on as as your definition of the core vaccines for cattle in Canada? So the core vaccines uh, we uh, recommend to Western Canadian producers or beef producers are bovine viral diarrhea virus or BVD, both type 1 and type 2, then IBR virus or bovine herbivirus uh, type 1, then BRSV or bovine respiratory syncytial virus, then of the Clostridial bacteria, we recommend a Clostridia shovi, Clostridia septicum, Clostridia novi, Clostridia sardella, and Clostridia provincians type B, C, and D. We had a lot of controversy in our group about tetanus. Um, quite a few of us thought tetanus should be a core vaccine based on our definition, but we decided to be consistent with the U.S. on the Clostridials. The one we didn't agree with the U.S. as a core vaccine was parainfluenza 3 or PI3. The reality is a lot of your combo viral vaccines have PI3 in, so whether you want it or not, it tends to come along for the ride, but we did not think it caused um, much, you know, obvious disease and didn't meet our definition for core virus, but the reality is most combo vaccines have it in there with IBR. Right. So most producers would buy core vaccines in two bottles. One would be a clostridial vaccine that's often a seven-way, eight-way, or even nine-way vaccine that may or may not include tetanus, but would probably include all those core ones for sure. And the second one would be the viral vaccine that often contains PI3, even though that's not a core vaccine. That'd be correct, right? Yes, that would be correct, yeah. Uh, so there's lots of vaccines out there, uh, and th- there's some other ones that aren't on that list, and you called those risk-based vaccines. So how do you determine uh, if you should be using some of those risk-based vaccines in your herd? Yeah, so risk-based vaccines, you know, are, are based on, you know, do you have a problem in your particular area or in your herd? I mean, the first reason would be, you know, have you had a disease problem in your herd in the last while with those particular vaccines? Then, you know, um, or has your neighbor, you know, sort of like producer said, I've had the disease problem or my neighbor has had it. Then, you know, you know, is your herd at high risk, you know, potentially from these, you know, so do you have, do you buy in replacement heifers or, you know, you bring in, in, in cows, right? Or do you have bulls coming from other areas or do you go to community pasture? you know, for the summer. Uh, so our producer co-op where, you know, your cattle are exposed to other cattle from other herds. Because, you know, it's pretty hard to have a truly closed herd where you're not bringing any new stock in or exposing them to anything new. Or do you, you know, take your some of your breeding stock, if you've got purebred stock, to shows, right? And then you're exposed to lots of other cattle where the risk is high. 
So part of, you know, risk-based is, you know, is your herd at significant risk? You know, and a producer and veterinarian have to sit down together and discuss what is significant risk to that individual producer and what risk is he willing to live with? And then at the end of the day, do we have a good vaccine or effective vaccine? Um, Because we don't necessarily have effective vaccines for all the other infectious agents out there. So a good example of a risk-based vaccine might be something like uh, Vibrio vaccine, Campylobacter fetus vaccine. Uh, yeah. And if you, you if you go to a community pasture, you might be more likely to have that included in your vaccine protocol compared to somebody that has more of a closed herd. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, they lepto and vibrio are definitely risk based. Even the scour vaccines, you know, uh, for scours are definitely risk based. And you know, maybe you use them in your replacement heifers because you're calving closer to home and more confined facilities. But, you know, um, we always joke the solution to pollution is dilution. So if you kick them out in the back 40, then your risk of scars usually is fairly low, right? Exactly. So there's management factors that might influence whether you need to have a scours vaccine in your herd or not. And that's why it's called risk-based. So your group produced a bunch of other resources or, or in the process of doing that, what are some of those resources that producers can access to uh, um, help them with deciding on vaccines that they should use in the herd. Um, so some of the video or some of the extension tools we've created are six videos on proper vaccine handling because sometimes you know uh, you know we forget things and and sometimes the vaccine actually is effective but how we administer it or fail to administer it properly can result in vaccine failure. So those videos are currently available on the Western um, Animal Health Network uh, website. If you uh, log in there or create a membership there with that, we can, then you can access them. For vets, we have them available on the Western Canadian Association of Bovine Practitioners Members Portal. And, um, and then, John, you said you'll make those available for producers and veterinarians, so that's great. Then the other tools that we are developing, well, we'll have two articles from the Canadian Cattlemen's Association coming up shortly. Uh, one this month um, on uh, vaccines as well as um, in April. There'll be another article. So we have a, a podcast on herd disease outbreaks. It's kind of the good, the bad, the ugly, which yourself, John, you're one of the speakers, as well as Dr. Jansen and Dr. Tim Nickel and Dr. Bruce Koskalensky, which are real-life examples of wrecks that have happened uh, due to issues with either not using vaccine or how we use the vaccine. So I think those are really interesting for vets and producers. So that sits on the Weekend website. We also have a podcast on the Weekend website, a little bit about this project. And then, of course, this podcast. We have made some presentations already at producer meetings um, in Oles and with Saskatchewan Ag, but those are not currently publicly available. We um, have put a newsletter article in WCBP, Dr. Claire has, and that is available for vets. Then we will soon be having, um, well, available, either be on the Beef Cattle Research Council, but it definitely will be also on Weekend and the University of Calgary Vet Medicine Beef uh, Extension website with uh, disease fact sheets. So we'll have one on vaccines, just about what are vaccines and so forth, a short infographic fact sheet on vaccine handling tips. It's always a good thing to have that available. I used to post that in my feedlot processing barns all the time. Then producer did ask us for disease information sheets on common diseases. So we will have those on all the core diseases as well as a bunch of the risk-based diseases to provide producers with more information on what are those diseases. 
in, we will have some vaccination decision trees on the core vaccines, and that more focuses on who in your herd to vaccinate and when to vaccinate. And then for the risk-based vaccines, we've created some decision trees to help producers and vets work through together to determine whether or not to use that particular vaccine in that particular herd. And then we'll have a herd questionnaire that veterinarians could send to the producers to help producers fill out, like currently, some management practices or herd inventory so that veterinarians can receive this ahead of time to review and then discuss with their producer clients how best to develop a herd-specific vaccination protocol. So all those tools should be available uh, within, you know, by the end of April is our goal or early May. Well, that's great. And I'll put links to those that are available in the show notes. I actually uh, used my outbreak case uh, in that webinar in a previous episode, but and I had a link to that webinar as well in that episode too. So uh, hopefully people can go and access some of those. Just before we wrap up, Joyce, maybe you can tell us some of the key things we can do to improve vaccine success in our herd. Well, I guess based on my experience, I think it's really important to, you know, have a discussion with your veterinarian about, you know, what diseases are of concern to you um, and and to be familiar about diseases, right? Because, um, you know, I've had producers come in and say, well, give me what's in the purple box. But, you know, they don't know even, they don't understand what diseases are vaccinating for or why. And I just encourage producers, I believe, you know, that it's important to be informed and to understand what the diseases can or or cannot, you know, can do in your herd potentially. So you can put in perspective your own risk that you're comfortable with. And then to talk with your veterinarian on what vaccines, you know, are effective because just because they're on the market doesn't always mean they're effective in a commercial herd and then how best to use them and when to use them. So uh, that you, you know, have success with the vaccines because none of us want vaccine failure. They're expensive. And if you use them, obviously you want them to work. So I just encourage um, producers to work with the veterinarians. I know we hear a lot. It's hard to get a veterinarian. But, you know, we do telemedicine now, so even a phone call with your veterinarian, and hopefully that herd questionnaire develop helps um, so that you can have, you know, a herd-specific protocol that works for you, the producer, because at the end of the day, that's who veterinarians serve. We serve you uh, to help you um, manage your herd as best as possible. That's great advice, Joyce. Thank you. I should add that we're going to have Joyce back on a future episode to talk specifically about vaccine handling. So stay tuned for that. Uh, But thanks again for doing this with me today, Joyce. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, John. Thanks a lot. That's our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Joyce Van Donkerski. If you're looking for any of the links in our show notes, please go online to our webpage at bchn.transistor.fm. bchn.transistor.fm. Thank you to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. We always appreciate your feedback, and if you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care till next time.